You are listening to the Island Christian Church of Holbrook podcast. This message is the third part of the series called Timeless Truth. Today's message, given on February 11, 2018, is titled Literally Figuratively. How many of you have ever read something and you're done reading it and you're just like, I have no idea what I just read, right? Yeah, especially the college students, some of you, right? You know, you're like, oh man, you know, or it's just like crazy, you know? And, um, but, you know, sometimes, uh, being honest here, we're, we're honest, we're real, sometimes when you read the Bible, you kind of read it and you're just like, okay, I, I've told, been told this is important, it just doesn't make sense to me. Has that happened to you the, ever? Yeah, of course it has. And it's possible that what's happened is that it is that part that you're reading is written in another form of language, and it, you need to interpret it using different tools. You know, some people say, you know, have a toolbox with lots of special tools in the box. And some people just like, hey, hit it with a bigger hammer and we'll fix the thing, right? Okay. And you don't want to just always hit it with a bigger hammer. When you have a toolbox, you have different tools in the box that you use for the job at hand. And the same thing when we try to understand language and specifically here in this context, when we try to understand the Bible, it's important that we use the right tool based on the language that we're reading. And um, I, this week I was reading a comic, and I'm going to read the comic to you, and tell, tell me if you think it's funny or not. The comic, it's, it's a, a group at a party, and they say, um, her husband's been out of work for months. And then somebody else says, poor Shirley, it's obvious she's the one bringing home the bacon. Nobody's laughing, and I, I wouldn't either. You know, some of you, have you ever heard the term bringing home the bacon? What does that mean? Working for a living, earning a living, right? But, you know, you're kind of like, gee, Bob, that was pretty poor. Right? Can't you do better than that? Well, let me show you the picture. <laughs> it's a group of pigs, if you can't see. And this is poor Shirley here. Shirley has some stitches here. Okay, so probably they've been removing parts of Shirley in order to make the bacon. Now is it maybe a little more funny? Okay, the point I'm making is when we don't understand the purpose of some language, we don't get the meaning of it, okay? And so this certainly gives a whole new meaning to bringing home the bacon, doesn't it? Well, bringing home the bacon is what we call figurative language. And this message is called literally figuratively. I called it literally because my daughter and kids her age, everything is, oh, I literally, you know, literally, you know, that's kind of one of those words that's overused, right, Jojo? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you there. But, but what we, the reason why we did it is we said, um, we're doing this series called Timeless Truth, and we said it's important to interpret the plain, literal passages of Scripture in their literal meaning, and that means as they would commonly be used. And we don't have to use a secret decoder ring to try to understand it. It's just really plain right there, and we do it. But sometimes we get to this language that is not intended to be interpreted literally, and it's figurative language, and so we have to use some other tools for that. You see, P- 
people look at parts of the Bible and some of them, quite frankly, don't make sense. And if that's you, guess what? You are in good company. And yet, if we can identify that a different form of language is being used, then we can use the right tool or the guideline. And when we do it, it's worthwhile because we get a richer understanding of the wonderful treasure that God has left for us, for us to learn from and to build our life around. So we're doing this series. I, I liken it to sort of like a do-it-yourself show. And if you like the DIY shows, you know, how to do this, how to cook, how to, you know, re- renovate a room, how to fix a car, how to fix a washing machine, how to play guitar, you know, these things are popular on the internet and on TV. And what I'm doing is I'm kind of giving you a look at how I have come to learn to understand and to interpret the Bible. So these are techniques that I use as I'm studying scripture. And, you know, some of them I was taught by others, some of them I read, you know, and so it's kind of a a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm just trying to explain to you so that hopefully when you approach the Bible, you will get more out of it and you will get out of it what God has for you. So that's what we're doing. Turn to Luke chapter 11. And I'm going to read a passage to you, and then in the first reading, I'm not going to give you any context or anything. And just see how it strikes you. I'm going to start reading at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you, I cannot get up and give you anything. Well, I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, does that sound like, you know, does that sound weird to you? You know, because you see, Jesus just taught on prayer. In fact, there are two cases in scripture where the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer are listed, and this is one of them. So he just taught his disciples. They asked him, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And he said, sure, pray this way. And then he said, you know, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know, you know that one. You probably said it. And then he tells this parable. And you're kind of like, wait a minute. Are you Jesus? telling them that we should just start bugging. And and the only reason why the person answers and gives him the bread is because the guy's bugging him at midnight. Doesn't that sound maybe a little out of character for God? And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at this. And so hopefully two things are going to happen today. It's important to pray as we read scripture, so that God will illuminate the truth into our hearts and we get the proper interpretation. That's why I always pray before I read scripture. And that's why we pray before we try to unpack the scripture here. And today we are going to learn how to interpret figurative language because that's what this is. This is a parable. It is figurative language. But also there is a very important truth about prayer that's here. So this isn't just a technical how to do it, but there is a truth here about prayer that I believe that if you grab a hold of this, it will change the way you commune with God. So 
Is this worthwhile? I certainly hope so. So we're going to talk about figurative language today. And as we said, it's very important to understand the type of language in a passage and use the guidelines of that to interpret it. What is figurative language? Well, it refers to any words that are used with a meaning other than their common, ordinary, literal sense. Um, any of you remember the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, made into a movie, written by C.S. Lewis, great writer. And he said this, he says, anyone who talks about things that cannot be seen, touched, or heard must talk as if they could be seen, touched, or heard. Okay, And Eastern languages, of which the Bible was originally written in, are especially full of figures of speech. The Bible is full of figurative language. There are similes. Simile is a comparison using like or as, right? A metaphor is a comparison where you don't necessarily have to use like or as. Um, There's poetry, um, uh, but the poetry is different. It's not, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. Da, da, you know, it's not rhyming, but there's a different form for po- poetry, especially Hebrew poetry. And um, parables, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, don't worry. This is not grammar 101. Okay? Just, just saying. You know, I don't want this to be, I want this to be both helpful but also inspirational as well. So what are some guidelines for interpreting figurative language? Okay, well, first of all, you have to identify that the language is not to be taken in its plain, literal uh, understanding and meaning, and then you have to understand what type of language it is. And here's kind of a rule that we use. We say biblical language should be taken as literal unless there is a compelling reason to take it otherwise. Okay, so here's an example. If a statement would be obviously irrational, unreasonable, or absurd, you know, you can't take it literally. For instance, Jesus said, I am the door. It's not, Jesus, this door, is this you? No, that makes no sense at all. But Jesus is using a figure of speech to compare himself to a door by which people go in and out through. So when somebody uses something like that, you don't take that literally. If the context indicates that the language is figurative, well, then that's a clue that it's okay to interpret this figuratively. Like, for instance, Jesus sometimes says, hear this parable, okay? So he's like telling us, okay, we're going figurative here. So let's start to use it. Or sometimes in scripture, it will just tell a story. And when it starts to tell a story, it might not necessarily be a true story, but it might be an illustration or an example of something. Okay? Or, and, and here, this one is key. If you take the passage literally and it contradicts with a clearer and more direct passage in Scripture, then you can't take it literally. Okay? Here's a good example. Jesus said this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you're like, wait, Jesus said to love others. Why is he telling us we can't come in, we can't follow him if we don't hate? Well, he's not telling us to hate them. What he's doing is he's making a comparison there. It has to do with a degree. He's saying that our love for Jesus should be way more so that by comparison, the love for people who we do love would almost appear as if we were hating them. And so do you see that frames it in a different context? Does that make sense there? So sometimes people get out of bounds when they read something and they say, 
oh, I got to follow that. But no, we always have to take scripture within the context of all other scripture. And when something is plain and clear and a direct command or instruction, that trumps it. You know, we don't go to the parable, uh, you know, and, and in, in, enforce that. Now, the viewpoint of the author and the original recipients must control our understanding, not our own perceptions. You see, you get in trouble if you come to scripture with an understanding and you say, oh, God works this way. And so here I'm reading this. And so that must mean this. No, what you've just done there is you've made yourself an authority over the scripture. If you do that, you have to come to the scripture and look at what the scripture says, and then you need to form your opinions and understanding from that, okay? Don't force current perceptions on ancient culture. You know, words have changed meanings through the years, you know? I mean, just look at words that, you know, we use today. They never meant these things earlier, Okay, so the task of somebody interpreting is to determine what the author had in mind in his comparison, not by our own experiences that are in a different culture that we're in today. So the intent of the author must control our understanding of the meaning. Okay, so that's just a little overview of figurative language. Now, there's lots of different forms of figurative language. We're going to look at one form today called parables. Okay, now a parable is a true-to-life story that's designed to teach a truth or to answer a question. Okay, now although a parable is not a record of something that happened in history, you know, it's not like, you know, this parable that we just read, you know, Jesus was talking about, you know, someone who that actually happened to. No, it doesn't have to have happened, but it needs to be true to life. A uh, parable comes from a Greek word that actually means it's parabola, okay, not the math thing, but it means actually placing one thing by the side of another thing. You take the, in order to understand the, the unknown, you place it next to the known, and then you can start to draw an inference and a comparison of it, okay? And so, That's exactly what he's doing. Why is he doing this? Well, you see, in the culture of the day, if you had visitors, okay, they relied on hospitality. You couldn't just go on the Priceline app and or call call up Airbnb and find a place and jump in. When you were traveling, you had to rely on the hospitality of a host family that lived in the area that you were traveling. And the host family couldn't run out to the 7-Eleven at midnight to get food for breakfast for the next day because there wasn't any, okay? And in that culture, if a host did not show hospitality to someone, that was the greatest insult that there was. So I'm trying to understand the place that this, this man is in. We don't know exactly how the guest came, or but it sounds like it was unexpected. And now it's midnight, and he's like, I don't have anything. So he goes to his neighbor, and he's like, you know, friend. He calls him friend. Do you have some loaves of bread? I, I, need, I need some loaves. You know, I have to do this. And, you know, the guy in the, the house isn't saying, oh, yes, friend, I can help you out. No, he's like, you know, no, go away. Don't bother me. It's midnight. You'll wake us up. And then, but the guy keeps asking and asking. And finally, the guy says, well, look, just to get him off my back, I'm going to give him this stuff. And so it's important. This is a common 
thing and a common occurrence to the people of the day. So when Jesus uses it to teach on prayer, it resonates with them. Okay, we're going to look at six steps to interpret a parable. This came um, out of a textbook that I used when I was studying this called Understanding and Applying the Bible by uh, Robinson McQuilkin. Um, it's a great technical book. I'm not saying go out and get it because, you know, it's one of those books that you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know. But I'm going to try to boil it down because it can help us here. Okay, so, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to use these six steps to interpret the parable that we just read. So you'll, you'll see how it works. It's not just theory. We're going to actually go through and do it. Okay, step one, begin with the immediate context. Well, gee, that's exactly what we talked about last week, wasn't it? When we said context counts, and it's the exact same thing here. You begin with the context. You need to identify the chief character, the main point, and establish the context. And look to see if there's an application given. And if there is an application given, then... Great, your work is done. You just follow what Jesus said there. And by the way, there's like a ton of parables, you know. Some people say there's 25, some people say there's 39, depending on how you interpret it. But Jesus used parables a lot in his teaching, okay? And when Jesus does explain the meaning, then that controls the interpretation. And we don't want to impose another meaning on it, okay? So, what's the immediate context of this? Well, Let's go up to verse 1 of Luke 11. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, the Son of God, also prayed. Jesus prayed, okay? And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. How awesome would that be? Jesus, teach me to pray. I mean... When you want to know something and you want to get the best example of it, don't you want to go to the person who knows the most about it? Sure, you want to go to the expert. You don't want to go to the person that's just like, you know, well, I I just, you know, read this online and somebody tweeted it and so it must be true. You know, it was on the internet. It must be true. No, we want to go to the expert on something. And to go to learn about prayer, we go to Jesus, the expert on it. And he actually gives us stuff there. And so Jesus just taught on prayer. And that's the context of this. The context of this is prayer. Okay? He also illustrates it in verses 9 and 10. When he says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So, so that's the immediate context. The context is Jesus teaching on prayer. The second guideline is you want to identify the main point. So once we found the context, now we need to find the main point. Now, doesn't that sound similar to what we talked about of finding the primary interpretation of a scripture? And yes, it is. But sometimes the main point is a little bit, you know, it, it's a little under the covers. You don't see it right up front. Okay. But parables have a central point of emphasis, okay? Basically, a parable is there, and it's, you, it's used to teach just one thing. You know, there are people who try to get a lot of things out of a parable, but it's really just designed to teach you one thing, okay? Now, I want to look at a couple of words here in this. I want to look in uh, verse, 
uh, where is it? Uh, uh, I tell you, though, he will not. Uh, but yeah, verse eight. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is friend. He's, he's not answering and giving him the bread because he's friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise up and give him whatever it needs. Now, that's not a common word that we use. Some of you might have a different word in your Bible. What, what do you have in yours? Persistence, right. My, mine has a footnote, and it says persistence. Okay? Um, impudence only occurs here. The word is once in all of Scripture, and it's right here. So if you look at all other known uses in ancient literature, impudence actually means lack of sensitivity to what is proper. In other words, I'm not, you know, constrained by the social norms. You know, listen, maybe some of you know someone who has poor relational uh, intelligence. You know, it's like they just go into a room and, you know, just say the wrong thing and they say it in the wrong way and people just kind of roll their eyes, you know. Uh, Please, that's kind of what it's saying here. Someone who is not constrained by the social custom, someone who's barging in, interrupting, not listening, somebody who's, you know, just not really, you know, remember in elementary school, gets along well with others, <laughs> needs improvement. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it, okay? And so impudence means this, and it, essentially it means um, that it would indicate that the friend is shamelessly and boldly awakening his neighbor. And so because of that, that's why the neighbor, he's basically saying, I want to get him off my back, so I'll give him the bread, okay? So um, now, here's the thing, though, and, and this is key. The comparison here, you cannot draw the comparison between this and the way God works because the comparison is not one of likeness, but the comparison is one of contrast, Okay? Jesus is contrasting the way a person does it. And then he says, how much more does your heavenly father? In other words, this guy is giving the bread to get the impudent person off their back. God doesn't do it that way. So it's a contrast here. Okay, there's a contrast between man's ways and God's ways. And that in verse 9, the verb tense for ask actually means keep on asking. And the verb tense for seek means keep on seeking. So it's not just like, I ask God. He knows. I mean, listen, God knows what we need before we even ask it anyway. So there's something that happens when we ask God because we're entering into a dialogue. And oftentimes, what happens when we start asking God? Who's the one that changes? We do. And God uses the process of asking and seeking and knocking to recalibrate us so that we can receive what God really wants to give us. So anyway, there there are kind of two ideas in this that will help us find the main point. There's kind of that shameless persistence. There's the shamelessness and then there's the persistence. And so possibly both of them are intended by this unusual term, shameless persistence. So the main point here, I think, is that God answers prayer, particularly persistent prayer. 
God answers prayer, particularly persistent prayer. So now we've identified the main point. Now, in a parable, there are often lots of details that are there, but they don't really mean anything. Okay, um, you ever go in the city and you're walking on a sidewalk and all of a sudden, you know, you go under this overhang and it's because there's scaffolding that's being put up so that they can do some work on the exterior of a building, you know, or maybe they're building. Now, scaffolding does not stay with the building. Scaffolding is put up and it stays up while the job is being done and then scaffolding is taken down. Sometimes it takes a really long time in some parts of the city for the scaffolding to come down. And I always, just as an aside, I always wonder, like, what's going to drop on me when I walk by that? I don't know. I get skeeved by that, you know. Water falling from above in the city is never a good thing. Um, So anyway, but that's scaffolding. And there are words and details used that are kind of like scaffolding in parables. And so we need to, the third point is we need to identify the irrelevant details. They're not akin to the primary teaching. Okay, so what are some of these, I'll call them the irrelevant details. Okay, Um, there's a bunch here. I'm just going to throw out a couple of them. First of all, well, the friend was unresponsive at first. So that must mean something. And maybe, you know, God is unresponsive at first. No, no, he's not. Don't assume that. Okay, Um, other irrelevant deals. Well, the request was made at midnight, so there's something special about midnight. That's the end of one day and the beginning of the next day, so that must... No, don't go there. Not important. Irrelevant detail. Um, Or the, the, the neighbor who said, don't bother me. Well, God doesn't say, don't bother me, does it? No, not at all. That doesn't speak of God's character. Or some people say... Well, he didn't make the request for himself. He was making the request because he had guests. And so he was asking on behalf of the guests. So, so that's a better, con- no, irrelevant detail. Just, you know, they're there to make the story complete. It's not to teach some other new thing, as some teachers like to do. Okay? So you kind of identify, okay, that's nice here. It makes the story complete, but it's not teaching us something you know, new. And so don't, don't try to read something into it that isn't there. Okay, fourth thing. Well, if we said if we're supposed to identify the irrelevant details and put them on the side, then what's the opposite? Well, we need to identify the relevant details because the relevant details will always reinforce the central theme. Okay? I think one of the most relevant details here is the neighbor kept on asking. He just kept on asking. And I think what that means to us is don't just ask God something once and then move on. We should persist when asking God to supply our needs. It's okay. I think that is a very relevant detail there. Okay? Number five, compare parallel and contrasting passages. You see, oftentimes, once we see a central theme, or maybe we're having trouble seeing the theme, we'll take a look and see, hey, is there something else in Scripture that either compares or contrasts to this? Okay? Um, Now, right after this, there's a very interesting comparison. We didn't read that far, but we're going to read it now. Even though the neighbor was unresponsive, God is responsive 
And God is good as a father is to a son. And we see this in verse 11 and 12. Jesus says this, he says, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? You see, fish and eggs were common foods in Palestine in that day. You know, that was in the regular diet. This is something that they understood. And serpents and scorpions were regular hazards in that land. So this is something that's resonating. He said, yeah, Dad's not going to, you know, give you something bad when you ask for something good. Okay, so that's a comparison right there. Okay, and then he concludes in verse 13 with a key, and I love this. He says this, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay? He's saying, if you, you guys, and quite frankly, you're evil. I don't know. I don't like to be called evil, but it's true. If Jesus calls you evil, you're evil. And you know what? We're all evil. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? But he's saying, if you guys, you even though you're sinful and you don't do everything right, You treat your kids in the right way. If you do it, how much more is God going to do it? So he's taking an argument from the lesser and applying it to the greater there. And so a far more important gift than material blessings is the powerful anointing and guidance of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, he is gladly willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Now, the Holy Spirit enters into the life and regenerates us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are sinful, okay? We cannot get right with God on our own. But God provided a remedy, and the remedy is his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a horrible death on a cross, for, our, for the forgiveness of our sins as our substitute in our place. And then he was risen, resurrected from the dead, and he lives today. And we need to respond to him and turn to him in faith and say, God, forgive my sins. I receive the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross as a substitute for my sins. Forgive me. Come into my life. Okay? And that is when the Holy Spirit comes in. And he regenerates us so that we can have faith to turn to follow Christ and receive his forgiveness and start new life. And so Jesus is willing, the Heavenly Father is willing to give the Holy Spirit to those people who ask him. What a wonderful, wonderful thing that is. Okay, so so that's that. Now, so we, we've done a little comparison with Something right there. But sometimes you have to look elsewhere. Okay? Now, um, this prayer that's in uh, Luke 11 is also found somewhere else. Okay? The Lord's Prayer is also found in Matthew 6. Um, You don't have to turn there, 
But I just want to mention that the prayer is there. But this is a similar type of thing. Jesus is teaching on prayer. And in Matthew 6, 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So, so immediately there's a contrast here. Praying with importunity or impudence or persistently doesn't mean, you know, oh, I just have to repeat this eight times and then I have to say this. You know, something was on social media the other day about someone just, you know, praying this same phrase over and over again for hours. I'm just like... You know, if I was God, I would be like, enough, I got this. You know, stop, stop, you know. Uh, remember CD players when they would get stuck and they would kind of repeat the same thing? You know, I'd be like, kick the thing, move on, you know. So it's just one of those things where Jesus is saying, you know, listen, when I'm telling you to do it this way, I'm not telling you to just, you know, have this vain repetition of stuff. No, why does he want people to pray like this? Because the prayer is the key to a relationship. You know, you could be like, yeah, I could be like, hey, Ann, I love you. And she could say, I hope, yeah, I love you too, Bob. And then um, when, when's the last time we talked? Three years ago. Oh, yeah, that's real love, isn't it? No, you know, in a relationship, you need dialogue, you need communication, you need connection, and all those things. And that is the key of this. I think what happens is, as we pray, and as God changes us, our prayers actually change as well. And we get a clearer understanding of God's nature and character. And then as we pray, our prayers start to go. And through this, it's a process. And it's amazing what happens. So sometimes comparing with other parallel or contrasting passages make a sense. Make sense. Okay. You could also, um, another one, well, we don't have time to read it now, but I'll just mention it. There's another parable in Luke 18, starting in verse 1. You might want to go home and read it. It's called the parable of the persistent widow. Okay. Similar teaching, different approach to it. So you might want to, you know, just have a look at that. Okay. So, um, you know, that's it. So compare parallel and contrasting passage. The last thing, the sixth point is this, and this one is key. Base doctrine, our, our understanding of our faith and practice, base doctrine on clear, literal passages. Okay. Why is that important? Well, if an interpretation of a parable is given by Jesus, then it can legitimately be used as any other clear literal passage informing doctrine. Um, <clears throat> example, parable of the four soils. Okay, I believe it's uh, Matthew 4, Mark 4. Anyway, Jesus actually tells this story to his disciples, and then they ask him, they go, Jesus, could you tell us what this means? Isn't that good? The guys who are following Jesus around for three years, they're like, Jesus, tell me what it means. So if you feel sometimes like, I don't know what this means, you know, they had the same thing too. And then Jesus goes ahead and he explains it. So when Jesus explains it, we can use Jesus' explanation just like everything else and not be in any kind of trouble of misinterpreting it. But when no interpretation is given, parables can contribute additional understanding to biblical doctrines but this is key. No true doctrine should be formed based on a parable alone. Anything that I say are the core of our beliefs, they are 
traced to clear, literal passages of Scripture. None of them are based on an interpretation of a parable. You can always find it somewhere else. And so the parable kind of makes the thing, you know, so that we can get it more and understand it, but it has to be the core seed of truth there first, okay? And there are people who don't do that, and they do get themselves in trouble. Okay, so is this parable about praying with importunity and persistence, is this consistent with the rest of Scripture? Absolutely. Keep on praying. God will answer. Have a look at this. Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's a command. Steadfast, not half-hearted. Continue. You know, it also says in another verse, pray without ceasing. Okay? Being watchful and be thankful. So you see, there, there's something here. So this is bringing home a point that is expressed elsewhere in Scripture. Okay, I want to just, I have a couple of observations and applications, and then we're going to close this. Okay? The first thing is Jesus teaches his followers to pray in a God-centered way. You see, there is a difference between immature prayer and mature God-centered prayer. Those of us who are parents, you don't expect your kids to have great mature thoughts when they're little, right? You're just happy that they can put two words together. You're even happy when that first word comes out, you know? And it's just so wonderful. And we love that. Okay, And God understands that. But as we grow in the faith, our prayers should, as we mature, they also should mature as well and be less self-centered and start to become more God-centered. You know, And when we hear someone pray with the priorities that Jesus teaches, it's almost like a new atmosphere comes over the room. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I have when I'm praying with someone. And all of a sudden, you know, it's just, wow, they're just praying. And they just want so much of, you know, God to show himself and God to change, you know, a situation that is deeply grieves God's heart. And you see stuff like that, you know, you just feel like, wow, we're going into the holy of holies now. Okay, so that is key. That, That is an observation. You know, there is a higher atmosphere um, when we pray with the priorities that Jesus teaches. And um, how can we find those priorities? Well, let's use the scripture that we're in. Just look at verse 2. This is how Jesus, I mean, he just says it right here. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. That is very God-centered. god Holy is your name. Holy are you, God. Your kingdom come. Not my agenda. Not my desires. Your kingdom. I want what you want to come. Okay? Give us each day our daily bread. In other words, supply our needs. And forgive us our sins. Because I don't know about you, but I've sinned, and yet, It's okay to keep praying. In fact, that's what we're told to do. When we sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And not only forgive us our sins, for we ourselves 
forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Even that really annoying person who hurt me deeply? Yes. Even that person that said something about you in front of other people and damaged your character? Yes. Even that person who did something unconscionable and caused great harm or injury to someone else? Yes. Jesus modeled forgiveness. And until we forgive those who are indebted to us, we are still on their hook. And we need to forgive them. And when we forgive them, we are no longer on their hook. And they get placed on the Lord's hook. Powerful, powerful principle. And we need to pray that way. Why do we pray? Because I can't do it that way on my own. None of us are wired to forgive. So that's why Jesus is saying, pray that you'll be able to forgive. That's God-centered. And as an aside, <laughs> lead us not into temptation. It's okay to pray that. It's wrong to admit, oh, I'm not tempted. No, everybody's tempted. We're just tempted with different things. We're tempted in different ways, in different situations. Jesus is saying, pray, lead us not into temptation. I don't need to say anything more on that because God is probably bringing something right into your mind and heart right now. And it's okay to take that to the Lord in prayer. That's how we pray. So we need to pray in a God-centered way. What should we persevere in praying for? You know, I mean, are there some things that it's like not right to keep praying for? Well, certainly things that are clearly said in Scripture to be the will of God for us. You pray for those things. You pray for that. And things that conform to God's desires. We pray for those things. Things that God promises. We pray for those things. Keep going. Now, what if something isn't in that category? Well, pray anyway. And you know what? If it's not God's will, you know what's going to happen? We'll eventually give up and stop praying for it. And that in and of itself can also be an answer to prayer. Here's a good one. Why does God sometimes delay answering? You ever ask that? Sure you have. Why does God delay answering? I like what John Piper said on this. He says, Jesus said a good father will only give his children what's good for them. Remember? You ask for a fish, you don't get a serpent. You ask for bread, you don't get a scorpion. And when our Father in heaven gives us a slow answer, when he wills that we prevail for a season, it is because he is giving us a fish and not a serpent. You see, if sometimes, have you ever done something quickly and you got the wrong thing? God doesn't give you the wrong thing. Sometimes we have to wait because it takes time to get the good thing. He is giving us what is good for us. There is something in the prevailing, the asking and seeking and knocking that we need. 
that is good for us. And he knows best. So I hope these principles have been helpful to you. And I hope that by, you know, it's not just theory, but I hope by applying it to this parable, I hope you will get the key of persistent prayer. I hope that that becomes something. And I need to ask you this as we close. Is there something or someone that you have stopped praying for? who you need to start praying for once again. Is there someone or something that you used to pray for and it seemed like nothing happened and maybe it's time to pick it up again? This is what I want you to do. This week, I want you to begin to pray with impudence in a God-centered way. If somebody or something came to mind, that's where you go. You start praying for them or that situation or that thing. Start praying persistently, shamelessly persistent, and see what God does. If you do that and get that, I believe that is the best use of your time being here today. If you start praying for someone or something that, you know, you just gave up on. Don't give up. Sometimes God is slow by our standards, but his timing is perfect. Now, the last couple of weeks, I gave little assignments, and a lot of you did the first one, just a couple of you did the second one. So I'll give you another one, and I promise, you know, I might not get on it right away, but if you send it to me, I'll be happy to answer it. Here's what I'd like you to do if, you, if you're up for the challenge. These six steps that we talked about, there's another parable that I want you to interpret with it. And to make it easier on me, I want you to all do the same one. Because if you all do different things, then i got to study it out and whatnot. So let's all get on the same page. Here's the parable. Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. Okay? Um, <clears throat> there it is. It's a short parable. And it, what you do, use those six steps. Um, if you're like, oh, I didn't write them down, drop me an email. I'll send you the list of the six steps. And then um, go ahead and go through it just like we did here and figure out what the interpretation of that parable is. But listen, I feel like I can't speak on praying without ceasing and then just say, okay, guys, do it. I want to give us an opportunity before we sing, and I'd like you to do this. In just a minute, I'd like you to just get in prayer huddles. That's like yourself and two or three other people. You know, you can turn the chairs if you want to or whatever. Just get in little clumps of three, no more than four. There is a desperate need in this community. And I believe we are placed here to meet that need. And that need is people are not going to be in heaven without Jesus. People need to know the gospel and they need to be presented with it and responded to it. And we need to have a larger influence. We need to figure out how to do that better. And so I would ask you, 
to get in these prayer clusters and begin by praying to help us to better reach the community and also to reveal to me personally, God, show me what should I be doing in this effort. That's a start. And then you continue throughout the week. So let's do that right now.